Good morning, and welcome back to some of you. It's good to see you here this morning. <clears throat> um, let's get real about fear this morning, shall we? I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4, 35 through 41. Mark 4, 35 through 41. Will, I have a tad bit of an echo here. Okay. Beloved, listen to God's word. Jesus has just spent the entire day teaching. He's exhausted. And then we read these words. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. I believe that we are to envision ourselves in the boat with Jesus and the other disciples. Mark leaves some clues in his text that this is what he desires us to do. In the first instance, there is verse 36. Unlike the Gospel of Matthew, which has a version of this story, and unlike the Gospel of Luke, which also has a version of this story, verse 36 in Mark is original to Mark, where he mentions that the disciples took Jesus just as he was and put him in the boat, and that there were other boats along there with him. Why emphasize these other boats that are along with him? No word in Scripture is there superfluously, so why mention the other boats? Well, I think it's because Mark wants us to envision ourselves in the boat with Jesus through this episode. Another line of evidence that supports this idea is the situation into which the Gospel of Mark was written according to scholars. By all measures, the community to whom Mark was writing this Gospel for were suffering incredible persecution because of their faith in Jesus. In other words, since they had gotten in the boat in faith with Jesus, they were facing some incredibly difficult storms. And so, Mark recounts this story in order to fortify their faith, to help them get real about fear, and to deal with the problem of fear. And so I'd like us to do the same thing this morning. I personally think it's a highly timely message. So, to begin with, I invite you to imagine... Imagine that you are indeed with Jesus and the other disciples in the boat. If your vision and imagining is better with your eyes closed and you're not too sleepy this morning, I invite you to close your eyes. To see the picture, really try to put yourself there. It's a beautiful day. You don't expect anything. You're not prepared for any drama because, to be quite honest, there's been plenty of it all day long as Jesus has taught and faced some difficult conversations. 
And so you shove off, and as you do so, Jesus, weary and tired from a long day, Jesus climbs up on the little plank at the back of the smallish 26-foot-long boat, in all likelihood. He lays down on his side on a small, thin cushion, pulls his feet up toward his chest as if hugging himself, snatches a bit of rope as a makeshift pillow to lift his head, places his hands under his cheek as sleepy men are wont to do, and closes his eyes. The boat rocks gently and gently rocks back and forth, forth and back. And as you mingle with others and stave off sleep, Jesus succumbs to sleep. He's out, flat out, as peaceful as a purring kitten. All of your voices and ongoing conversation for Jesus fade into the background of his consciousness and become the substance of strange and wonderful dreams. You all drift off for a while as the boat drifts in a southeasterly direction from the top to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. A four to six hour trip, depending on the winds. If you're lucky, you'll arrive by morning. Maybe you're an hour in. Maybe two hours. Perhaps you pray for a little wind. Whether you do or not pray for wind, there's a lot of it. And that's to understate the case. In fact, there's a, quote, furious squall. The Greek word to describe what you're suddenly experiencing is somewhat of an onomatopoeia. You're overtaken, you now know, by a laylapse. A laylapse. In fact, you're overtaken by a laylapse megalay animu. A laylapse megalay animu. Literally, a great hurricane or whirlwind of wind. Or as the Greek poet Homer once described L.A. Laps, you were surrounded suddenly by a violent attack of wind. Or as another described the word after looking at all its uses in your day, L.A. Laps is never a single gust, nor a steady blowing wind, however violent. L.A. Laps is a storm breaking forth from black thunderclouds in furious gusts with floods of rain, and throwing everything topsy-turvy. Topsy-turvy? Absolutely. Your alert systems are immediately on high, your pupils dilate, your heart begins to race. Your sense of personal threat goes uh, from a 1 out of 1 to a 10 out of 10 in a nanosecond. The waves mount, the water begins crashing against the boat, you're knocked around, and remember it's becoming dark. You're whipped by rain coming at you 90 miles an hour at hurricane force. The boat is being blown like a lost balloon in a gale skimming across the surface of the water and not necessarily in the direction that you want it to go. Water begins filling the boat, swamping it. You all try bailing the water, but there's too much and you're too off balance. First the water comes up to your feet, then up to your ankles, then up to your knees. They're all covered. And quite naturally, you're afraid. You begin to panic. You become convinced that you're going to drown. Everyone panics. It's a mass panic attack. And no wonder. But then you think, where's Jesus? What happened to him? He's a bit conspicuous by his silence. You haven't heard from him at all yet. And so you wonder, has he been tipped overboard? Did the waves wash him away? Has he drowned already? Did he maybe get struck by lightning? And then you see, no, 
None of that has happened because he's right there, still rolled up, all cozy-like, in the stern, on a cushion, even though he's getting pelted with rain and bucketed with water in the midst of this laylapse. You initially figure that he must have bonked his head and is unconscious. That's the only explanation. But then as you inspect further, you see he's actually just still sleeping soundly. How is it possible? Sleeping through this, a lay lapse, a violent attack of wind. And in addition to being scared silly, you and the others with you now are not just a little bit miffed, a tad mad. Because Lord, how can you sleep through something like this? Don't you care if we drown? You wake him up. Jesus wakes, stands up, stretches, rubs his eyes, and then... He calmly, peacefully talks to the sea like it's some kind of sweet but unruly friend. Rebuking it, he says, hey you, shh, that's enough. Knock it off. Quiet now, sweetheart. And in peace descends. The wind zips its mouth. The waves curl up into a ball and go to sleep. All is calm. And at this point, your eyes widen. Your heart beats just as fast as it was beating before. And you glance at the others and they at you and all of you at Jesus. All mouths seem opened wide enough so that if a pride of elephants were to approach them, they'd be able to crawl in and lay down for a nap. You're all, as the English would say, gobsmacked. Perfectly gobsmacked. And then Jesus turns to you, all of you, and says something that strikes you as terribly insensitive, unbelievably unpastoral, and even says it with a huff, a bit of a huff, a disgruntled puff of irritation. Why, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? You were afraid of the hurricane. Now you're afraid of him, because good golly, Who says stuff like this? And who does stuff like this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. He says, hush puppy to hurricanes. And they listen. Oh my goodness. You inch backward and so do the others. And you stare at him. He lays down again, perhaps pulls up his knees and snoozes off once again. Storm or nor storm, this man needs some sleep. It was a busy day, after all. It would be ungodly, I think, beloved of God, to accuse Jesus our Lord of insensitivity. But I think that we would be forgiven for initially feeling that Jesus' response to the disciples' fear was indeed rather insensitive. The sense is redoubled when you pay attention to the Greek of our text. Because you know how Jesus actually diagnoses the disciples' response to the hurricane? He says, why are you all so, it's a plural, why are you all so, and then forgive the Greek again, but it's important in this case. He says, why are you all so deloi? Why are you all so deloi? There's lots of words in Greek to describe fear. Phobos would have been an obvious choice. Phobos, as we get in the word arachnophobia, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. But Mark does not use the word phobos. Instead, he uses the word deloi. Why the word deloi? Well, you know what this word means? It means 
faint-hearted, cowardly, or as one linguistic puts it, it refers to or connotes the person who is fearful in a shameful way. Fearful in a shameful way. Like the soldier, perhaps, who, when they are at the firing line, abandons all of the other soldiers to their peril. It has a moral dimension to it. It's to be cowardly. It's to be afraid in a shameful way. Well, a hurricane, Jesus, <laughs> a violent attack of wind, this is how you respond when your disciples are surrounded by a lay lapse? This is how you respond to our response to the lay lapses of our life simply because we are afraid? You call your disciples a bunch of cowards and then accuse them also of having a bunch of lack of faith? I don't know about you, but indeed this does feel to me as I read it, and I get the force of the Greek in this, it seems to me incredibly insensitive. It seems unpastoral. It seems, if I might put it this way, very un-Jesus-like. I mean, I think about what some of you have gone through recently. Some of the trauma, some of the events in your own life from certain other lay lapses, car accidents, encountering grizzly bears, scares from COVID-19. If I would have the audacity to come up to you in a pastoral situation when you were afraid like that and say, why are you such a coward? Man, do you ever lack faith? I think the council might have issue with me in my pastoral practices, don't you? But here Jesus says, why are you being such cowards? Do you still not have faith? In response to their, what we would say, realistic fear. So what do we conclude here, folks, about Jesus' response to the disciples' fear? Do we indeed conclude that Jesus is being insensitive, unpastoral? Do we conclude that Jesus is simply being unrealistic? Well, let me offer two very brief responses to this, and then a longer and more substantive response. In the first place, with reference to the charge of being insensitive, I think we can answer this a priori before looking at anything else outside of experience. If Jesus is God and God is love, then Jesus is not being insensitive. Very simply. And Jesus is being, is God. And in the second instance, with reference to the charge that Jesus is being unrealistic, Mark works very hard in our text, actually, to demonstrate to us that whoever else Jesus is, Jesus is fully and completely human. Gods don't get exhausted. Gods don't need to lay down in the stern of a boat and fall asleep. But here Jesus does. And so in principle, at least, Jesus' response to this storm is theoretically possible for other human beings. It's possible for us. And so Jesus is also not being unrealistic. And so what is Jesus doing here in this text? Well, I believe, friends, that what Jesus is doing is he's trying to teach his disciples and us in order to help us become more real, in order to help us become more and fully human. Because you see, consider this. The disciples think their biggest problem is the storm. But Jesus knows that their biggest problem is actually their fear. The disciples think their biggest problem is the furious squall that might drown them and kill them. But Jesus knows that their biggest problem is actually their cowardice in the face of a crisis. 
And why, we must ask, is fear, which is so natural for us and so incredibly human, such a problem according to Jesus and according to Scripture? Well, beloved, this is super important and maybe, I believe, more important, most important for us today in our changing and scary world. More important than it has been for most of us ever before in our lives. Allow me to suggest a number of different reasons, actually only two, why fear is a problem for us humans and why to be truly and fully human is actually to be able to respond calmly and peacefully in times of crisis instead of fearfully and why God wants this for us. First and most foundationally, fear is a problem when we face storms in life because fear fails to trust the God who is with us. This is the central thrust, it seems to me, of the entire passage before us and the most basic problem with our fear. Fear shows that we are failing to trust the God who is with us and who is indeed trustworthy, even when we're surrounded by terrible difficulties. The disciples are terrified. Jesus stands up. He tells the wind and the waves to hush now, darling. They do, and the disciples' response to Jesus' action at the end of our text is, who then is this that even the wind and waves obey him? Who is this? This is precisely the right question to be asking. Because any good reader of Scripture, friends, will immediately know the answer to this question. Who is this? Well, this can be none other than God. That's right, because throughout the Scriptures, there is only one person, one being, who can tame the waves on the sea, who can say, hush to the wind, and it must obey. Isaiah 51, 15. The same God who tames the sea is the one who stirs them up. I am the Lord your God who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Psalm 107, 23 through 25. Some went out in ships and they saw the works of the Lord. For the Lord spoke and stirred up that temp- a tempest that lifted high the waves. They reeled and staggered like drunkards. But the one who stirs up the sea, Scripture assures us, is also the one, the only one, who can still the sea. Psalm 107, 28, 30. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. Who is this? The disciples ask after Jesus stills the wind and the sea. It could be none other than the self-revelation of God who was there with them the whole time, right in their boat, in the midst of a lay lapse. Do we know the one who is with us in our storms? And do we trust him? This is the question. Larry made this point actually last week, Tuesday night, at our council meeting, as he reflected on COVID-19. COVID-19 has been really tough for us. It's messed up a lot of our lives. It's created a lot of fear in many of us. But we, in the Christian tradition, believe in a God who is sovereign and a God who is good. And so sometimes, even though we don't know why he is allowing to happen what he allows to happen, he assures us that he is still with us there in the storm. He is with Joseph 
in the prison cell, and what his brothers intended for evil, God turns around for good. God is still on the throne. God is still sovereign. He's with us in the boat. It's God that's with him in the boat. And what if the disciples knew that it wasn't just a tired human there, but it was also the God of the universe himself? How would that have impacted their response? There's a moment in an Iron Man movie. I don't know if all of you are familiar with Iron Man. It's part of the Marvel uh, comic stuff, but they've created these fun movies where there's, there's this heroic figure, and one of them is called Iron Man, and he's got all these neat gadgets, and he's very powerful, and he can beat up the bad guys. Anyways, Iron Man is, um, he has this fan. It's the little boy who's, I don't know, seven or eight or nine years old, and he wears an Iron Man costume, And then he wants to go and he wants to fight the bad guy. And we, the viewers, see this little boy, nine or ten years old, standing in a city square. And he's, the big bad guy is actually right in front of him. And he's wearing his costume and he holds up his pretend weapon and he's about to pretend to shoot this uh, bad guy. And we are afraid for this little boy until we see that Iron Man, the real Iron Man, is actually standing behind him. We're not afraid anymore. We know the boy has no reason to fear anymore because Iron Man is with him. (laughs) Brennan Manning tells a similar story about a young wigwam boy who, as a rite of passage, when he's 10 or 11 years old, if he's going to be a man, he needs to spend the whole night in a forest all by himself completely alone. And that night, this little boy doesn't sleep. Every crack of a stick, every chirp of a cricket is thought by this young boy to be some ferocious animal come to eat him. And then in the morning, as it begins to become light, this young boy sees a figure in the distance of a man standing with a bow and arrow lifted. And as it becomes lighter, this young wigwam boy sees that it's his father, His father has been standing there watching out and watching over him all night long. Oh, how the boy would have slept had he known that his father was there all night long watching over him, with him. Why are you so afraid? Why are you so cowardly? Do you still not have faith, Jesus says to us? He knows he is with us. He knows he is trustworthy. Do we? Fear is a problem in the first instance for us Christians, beloved, in a focused way because it will impede. Wait a minute, I'm skipping something. Hold on. That's not what I wanted to be. I was going to tell you a second reason, wasn't I? You thought you were going to get off easy this morning. Um, Another problem with our fear And why Jesus doesn't want us to live in fear, not only because it testifies to something that isn't true, that is to say that God isn't with us and he's not trustworthy, that's the first point, but then this. It's very simple. You know why fear is a problem, especially for Christians? It's because fear is paralyzing, right? Many of us have experienced this. You become seriously afraid and you cannot think. Have you ever had that before? You just can't think. Your brain goes to mush. And fear is a problem because it paralyzes your action too, Our typical response to fear is either fight or flight or freeze. There's actually an animal 
which illustrates this well. I don't know the particular name of it. Some kind of sheep that when it becomes afraid, it just freezes and then falls to the ground as though dead. And that's what can happen to us. We absolutely freeze. And this is, what's that? Somebody knows the name of it? No? This is, what's? Fainting goats. Thank you. So now you go look at YouTube and you'll have a very good image. Fainting goats. Thank you. It's pretty hilarious to watch, actually, uh, until you realize this is what I'm like when I become afraid. We can just freeze. And this is a problem for us, not only in general as human beings, because it incapacitates you, but especially for us Christians, because it will disable us in the long run from being able to think in crisis situations, being able to act in crisis situations when we would otherwise be afraid in ways that are going to be faithful to our Lord and in ways that are going to advance the kingdom of God, the purpose of Christ in this world. Think about these early disciples of Jesus, right? The Gospels move from the Gospels then into the book of Acts. What's the transition? The disciples think that they need to be afraid because of a laylapse, because of a great storm in their life. The reality, however, is that after Jesus ascends into heaven, they are going to need incredible courage, i.e. to say a lack of fear, if they're going to be able to do what Jesus is calling them to do. To face being pulled before tribunals to answer for their testimony about the name of Jesus. To be dragged before courts and told that you must renounce your faith in Jesus, otherwise it's going to be off with your head. To be dragged before synagogue rulers, as Jesus says. That is to say, church officials. To be called a heretic. To be threatened with excommunication is one of the issues the Gospel of John deals with. Unless you do as you're told and stop proclaiming the name of Jesus. Unless you stop making everybody feel bad by calling for a certain standard of living and a certain standard of life. This is what the early Christians faced. They needed tremendous courage. And beloved, the same is true for us. Tremendous courage is needed to live a life of faith. The Christian religion, in other words, is not for cowards. Jesus said that the world hated me because I tell it that what it does is evil. He also said that if the world hates me, it will hate you also. And we must know this and be prepared. Jesus was preparing them on the storm. Maybe some of the storms of our life previously have been preparing us for storms that are yet to come when we'll have an opportunity to witness to the truth of Jesus in a hostile world. But it requires courage, great courage. We cannot be frozen in our thoughts or in our action by fear. George Orwell once said that the further a society drifts from the truth, the more the society will hate those who speak the truth. It takes courage to be willing to be reviled. It's easy to go with the flow and be loved because you're supporting the right causes or speaking all the politically correct language. And that's all fine and good until going with the flow and speaking the right language conflicts with the testimony about Jesus. And what are we going to do? Are we going to act in fear and do what our Lord bids us not do? Or are we going to be courageous? I heard one of our brothers in Christ south of the border this past week um, reflect on his experience of Christians during COVID-19. And he has said, you know, I have seen a lot of Christians who are terrified at this point by COVID-19. They're afraid of death. Since when do we Christians need to be afraid of death? 
I'm not saying we are reckless. Please don't hear that. But do we need to fear death? Absolutely not. Our destiny is the same as Jesus on the third day to be raised from the dead. Fear is a problem for us Christians in a focused way because it will impede, if not completely, cut off our ability to be faithful and to complete the mission God has given us to do, which is to testify to the truth and, as Peter says in 1 Peter 1.17, to live as strangers and aliens here in this world in reverent fear. This is why, as Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, that God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but he's given us a spirit of power, of love, and of discipline. So do not be afraid. That's what I'm telling you this morning. Do not be afraid. And if you're like me, you'll say, okay, great. We're not supposed to be afraid. We're not supposed to be cowards, but we still are. So what do we do now? Let me just say two things in closing. First, friends, to deal with your fear, do everything you can. And I mean by embracing the spiritual disciplines. Do everything you can to become aware of the presence of God in your life, to meditate on his powerful deeds, and to yield your life to him in complete surrender on a daily basis. In other words, to unpack that, learn to fear the Lord and fear him above all things. And fear him in the sense of being aware of his presence, to revere him. And fear him in the sense of surrendering yourself to his wisdom in a life of obedience. This is what the fear of the Lord means in scripture. And fear the Lord in this way, if you want to overcome your fear, because as the Bible says, and millennia of saints who've gone before us have understood, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And one of the many reasons the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom is because unless you fear the Lord, friends, you will end up fearing everything else instead. Unless you fear the Lord, above all, you will end up fearing everything else instead. As Hugh Black phrased it, the fear of God kills all other fears. Or as the great devotional writer Oswald Chambers put it, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. And notice what happens in our text. This same principle is there. We see that the disciples are initially terrified by the storm, but after their attention is redirected to Jesus, to his presence, his power, his goodness, they become terrified, the text says, of Jesus. Their fear shifts from their outward circumstances to the Lord who is in their midst. And it's a good thing. Because again, unless we fear God above all, we will end up fearing everything else instead. Great. So that's one step, but what if we are still trying to do all of this stuff and we still find ourselves afraid, as so I, I so often do? Afraid of COVID-19, afraid of being rejected by our peers, afraid of being canceled because our Christian faith means we cannot affirm what our world affirms. Then here's what we do, beloved. We return to the gospel. We open up our hands. We open up our hearts. We repent of our fear and say, Lord, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Lord, I'm afraid, but help me to be unafraid. And then we simply and eagerly receive whatever grace our Lord gives us. Because you see, while we're called to be faithful, we can't ultimately give ourselves courage. 
where we're called to be unafraid. We can't ultimately deal with our own fear. Only Jesus can do that. We cannot ultimately give ourselves peace in the power of the Spirit. It's God's job. This is indicated at Pentecost, by the way. We are meant to see the juxtaposition between the last moments of Jesus' life when his disciples abandoned him of fear of likewise being caught and persecuted and perhaps killed, and then their behavior after they received the gift of the Spirit on Pentecost, going out into the world unafraid, not without timidity sometimes perhaps, but with great courage, standing before magistrates, standing before governors, standing before synagogue rulers to testify to the truth of Jesus. We just need to open our hands and receive the spirit that our Lord will give us to ask again. We're not saved by being unafraid. We're saved by the grace of God and we will struggle with fear as long as sin still resides in us powerfully. But we can make gains in this, and we are called to. Notice also what happens in our text again. This is rather fascinating. Jesus is clearly portrayed in our text as at peace. He's got an internalized peace that does pass all understanding for most of us. But what does he do with this internalized peace? He takes what is within him and over the stormy seas, he spreads his peace abroad over to the seas so that the peace internalized with him becomes externalized and creates the peace on the outside. The fundamental truth of the gospel is that Jesus takes the peace that he has earned before the Father and that he has within him internalized, and he externalizes it to us as his believers. As Paul says, he himself is our peace. He has taken what is his and given it to us. And it's paradigmatic for the Christian life as a whole. This is the mission of the church. You might think about the mission of the church this way. Not only to do this for one another, but to our world. To take the peace that we have received and that we have now internalized and to begin to see it creating peace on the world outside. The shalom that God looks for. First maybe in your marriage, then maybe in your family, then maybe in your tiny village, then maybe in the community. As the peace of God expands from those in whom it has been internalized to a world outside where it can be externalized. That really is another sermon. And so let me just say this in conclusion. Remember, beloved of God, God's words to Joshua, as they are about to go into a land that is enemy-occupied, where they are going to be called into some very terrifying battles. The Lord says to Joshua and to those with him, don't be afraid. Do not be terrified. But have great courage. For I will be with you, and I go before you. This is God's word. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.